Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from our guest speaker. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Well, good morning. Um, as Pastor Don introduced you, my name is Brian Harrell. I know for a lot of you guys, you, you may not know me. Uh, I am the guy in that video, believe it or not. <laughs> Judy, Judy asked me to give an update. So I've grown a beard. And, uh, and Andrew uh, in that video is now 20 years old. He's a sophomore at Liberty University. And we have, uh, we have three other children, uh, Dylan and Jana Kate are studying in Rift Valley Academy in, in Kenya, and Mike is with us here today. He's 13, just about to turn 14. So a lot has happened since this video, but um, as we think about this Jubilee, and as we think about the last 25 years of Gateway having a global impact conference, we want to celebrate what God has done, and we want to focus on the theme of faithfulness. And so to do that today, uh, we're going to look at the life of Paul and specifically how he sums up his ministry or the closing part of his ministry in his last imprisonment in 2 Timothy, last book he's going to write. And he's writing to Timothy. And we're going to focus on that because as we run the race which God has called us to, we want to think about the end. How do we want to finish? And how we want to finish is going to de- determine how we run that race. So let's look at at this passage of scripture, and then ask yourself, when it comes to the end, what will have made it worth it? What do you hope you could pen about your life? So, we're gonna jump into Second uh, Timothy chapter four, verses six through eight, and, uh, and, and uh, Paul starts by writing to Timothy saying, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord. The righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now to understand this verse, we need to go back to the beginning of this journey with Paul because I believe that faithfulness begins in our surrender to Jesus, to a person. And so you guys know who Paul was. I mean, this guy was, was well-trained and he was zealous. He was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was trained by one of the best. And he made it his job to snuff out the Christian faith. He was persecuting them, throwing them in jail, casting his lot against them. And then one day, he's on his way back from Damascus, and Jesus appears to him in a vision. And he falls on the ground, and he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul had lots of reasons not to believe in Jesus. He had studied the Old Testament scriptures. It might have made sense to him not to believe in Jesus. And then one day, he met the person. And when he met the person, the person of Jesus changed his life. And he goes into Damascus, and God talks to Ananias and says, Ananias, go pray with Paul. And Ananias says, are you crazy? And he says, no, I'm not crazy. I need you to go pray with him because he is my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the nations, to kings to the children of Israel, to the Gentiles. 
and I'm gonna show him how he is going to suffer for my name's sake. So I wanna start with that by saying that faithfulness begins in our surrender to the Lord. It begins at that moment where we have a personal relationship, enter into a personal relationship with the Lord. It's not this religious term. Faithfulness is a personal, relational term. Now, I did not come to Christ like Paul did. I was not on the road to Damascus and had this incredible vision. I was a religious person. I grew up in a family of missionaries. I knew the Bible. I was in church whenever the doors were open. I was a good kid. And then one day, my mom was talking to me in the car as we were driving someplace. And she said, you know, the problem is, Brian, you are not together with the Lord because your sin keeps you separate from him. And that was the first time that I realized that I, I needed to make a decision for the Lord. And she reached over and she tapped on the car door and said that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, Brian. Will you open your heart and come in and allow him to come in and be the Lord of your life? And that is when life began to change for me. Because when we surrender to the Lord, he reorients our life, right? For years, centuries, the world believed that the galaxy revolved around the earth, right? And they would figure it out and it all kind of made sense except for a few things that weren't quite right in their equations. And Copernicus figured this out and he goes, you know what, the world doesn't, the galaxy doesn't revolve around the earth, the earth revolves around the sun. In fact, it couldn't even work because the earth could not be designed to be the center of the galaxy. When we come to Christ, he reorients our life. Before then, everything was oriented around me, my life. God, we've invited him into our orbit. It's like this religious speak that we have and religious duty that we do because God is going to bless us. When you know the person of Jesus Christ and you surrender to him, then you are invited into his orbit, right? To accomplish his purpose. And it's designed to be that way. So faithfulness begins in our surrender to Jesus, to a person. Not to some like five truths that I think I believe in my head, but a person and a God who speaks to you and has knocked on the door of your heart and has invited you to become his son or his daughter. So then what does Paul say? He says, uh, getting back to our text in, in, uh, in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. This is the second time that Paul has talked about being a drink offering. A drink offering is like when you would have a sacrifice that you'd lay on the altar, right? Like, I don't know, whatever it was, or a bull or a ram, and you'd sacrifice it. And then at the end of it, you would pour out what they would call a libation. It's a nice old word for like they would take some wine and they'd either pour it on top of the offering or they'd pour it next to it. And the idea was it was the last full measure. It was the punctuation at the end that was like, a, 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 a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so Paul says that my life is like a drink offering. I am being poured out as a drink offering. Would you look at this verse and ask yourself, who's doing the pouring? He doesn't say I am pouring myself out. He says I am being poured out. God is the one doing the pouring. The first time Paul uses this expression, 
He's talking about his life that he's lived for the Philippian believers. He talks about it in the book of Philippians. He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering in service to their faith to see them grow. He's living a life of faithfulness to them, and it's requiring everything of them. And I want to encourage you that when God calls us to be faithful, it will require every part of us. I want to tell you about a week in our ministry, in our lives in Mozambique, in our second term, where God required everything. We felt like we were being poured out. We were expecting guests that were coming to, to work alongside of us. And uh, I had taken our car and I'd driven out into the bush because I'm always doing way too many things at the end. And Becky was preparing, my wife was preparing the, the, the house to receive our guests. And I was out there and my car breaks down. And at the little place that we were renting at the time, there was this small splash pool, and Micah, who was just one year and four months old, falls into the pool. And nobody is there to discover him. Becky discovers him after I don't know how many minutes and pulls him out, and Micah is blue. And he's not breathing. My wife is an ER nurse. She could not find a pulse. And she's praying over Micah. Jesus, give him life. Guys, we're in the call of Mozambique. The hospital doesn't even have oxygen. But by God's grace, we have a neighbor who had some oxygen. We give it to Micah, and we take him to the local hospital, which is when a friend has come and picked me up from the bush, and I'm now with him. And Micah is like opening his eyes, but he's not fully there mentally, and he's yelling and screaming, and then he's you know, just going into this trance-like state. Is my kid ever going to be the same? Is this going to be... What, what, what is going to happen? So we take him to the provincial capital. They also don't have oxygen. We finally find a private clinic that can get him what he needs. And, uh, and they, they put an IV on him. I sleep outside the hospital. Becky's sleeping on the hospital bed with him. And he wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning asking for agua. You know, He's speaking Portuguese and he's 100% uh, exactly the way that we left him. Praise God. You guys were praying for him during that time. God answered that prayer, and we bring him back. Our guests, we literally passed our guests that were coming to our house in the ambulances we were going the other direction. So we go back to our house. Let's carry on, because our son's okay, right? So we carry on with our trip, and we get on this dhow, which is like a, a boat, like a, one of their traditional wooden boats, and we sail up the coast to this place that has never heard the gospel before, and we're going to go there. We're going to share the gospel for the very first time. We tell them the story of Christ in this place called Simoku. And it's great. On the way back, the weather turns. Now the waves are really big, so big that we can't make any headway in our boat. So we go take shelter in a bay. And I'm setting up like the cots for people to sleep on the boat. And there's a piece of metal that I'm setting up and it springs open and it, it cuts my eye. Not like my eyeball, okay? And so about three o'clock in the morning, we take off through these waves in the darkness trying to get back to Becky. We round the corner into our home bay and I call Becky, and she's in her second day of malaria. This is not turned out to be a great week, right? So I take our, our guests back to Nampula, to the provincial capital, and, uh, and I go see an ophthalmologist. He's a, he's a Mozambican who was trained in Cuba. And he looks in my eye, and he says, you've got a cut in your eye, you need stitches. So at this point, most people are going to leave the country and go get that taken place, you know, in a place where you might have a you know, 
a, a decent facility. And I look at this guy, I can't leave my wife behind, and I'm like, can you do this? He says, yeah, sure, I can do this. Oh, my goodness. So, so the next day, I show up at the hospital, which is like the Soviet-era-looking hospital, right? And, uh, and I'm in my little gown, you know, and I'm in, in there waiting in the operation room. And the doctor walks in, and he goes, man, you look a little nervous. <laughs> you have no idea how nervous I am right now, you know? And he lays me down on the opera- operating table, and they put those drops in your eye, makes your eyes, you know, dilate and so forth. And then they bring over that microscope, that has like that bulb in it that looks like it's made from the sun, you know, it's just really bright. And he's looking into my eye, and, uh, and his, you know, his assistants are all sitting there looking, and, and he puts a stitch in my eye, okay? And then the bulb on the microscope burns out. Now I'm sitting there on the, on the table looking up, and he says, you might notice we're having a problem. I'm like, uh-huh. He says, don't worry. <laughs> Man, I was strung, strung so tight at that point. If somebody had slammed a door in the hallway, I would have levitated off that table and been stuck to the roof of that operating room. It was incredible. But he went ahead and finished up. He pulled over the surgery light, finished up stitching up my eye. Six months later, we came to, the, uh, came to South Africa. I went to see an ophthalmologist. He took a look at it. He said, whoever did this did a great job. You can hardly see the scar. God is faithful in all of this. But let me tell you, through that week, God poured us out and at the same time there is no time in our ministry where I saw God's grace being more sufficient than in that week this isn't original with me but I would like to tell you that God's will will always take you where only his grace can sustain you and we felt it that week we saw God's grace we felt your prayers a week later a team arrived from Gateway with Debbie and Larry Germany, good friends of ours, and your church minister to us. So I tell you that because we're trying to get to these places that are hard. I tried to get back to that place, shipwrecked. Um, You guys want to come on the boat with me? Probably not at this point, huh? (laughs) Got shipwrecked. Another time, I said, all right, well, let's ride bikes in there. I took a German friend of mine, and we rode in there on bikes. It took us a whole day to get there. It was terrible. Another time... We drove for about nine hours, and they wouldn't even let us get out the car because there was cholera in the village, and they thought that, that white people bring cholera, so they made us turn around and go back. Now, this is an old story, but little by little, over time, our German colleagues and some of our national believers started to share the faith. And in these villages that were so hard to get to, that didn't even have time to listen to the name of Jesus, had never even heard the name of Jesus, these people started coming to faith. And our people group, the Nahara, that are like 99-something percent Muslim, some of them started to make a decision for Christ. Last year, we have a Muslim insurgency going on in our country. It's associated with ISIS. And that insurgency jumped from the province above us into our province and filtered down right into the area that I'm talking to you about. And they happened upon the village we were trying to get to. And they found three believers. And they separated them out. And they killed them. But I just want you to think about the fact that 20 years ago, then how did they even have time to listen to the name of Jesus? And now they're willing to die for his name. Praise the Lord. That is what it means to be poured out 
Paul is poured out in his life, and Paul is being poured out in his death. Why? Because our faithfulness declares that God is worthy. Why do we do this? Because God is worthy. When, we, when he asks us to do these things that are beyond ourselves, why do we do it? We do it because he's worthy, right? Why would you stand for Christ when everybody in your family and your village doesn't? Why would you be willing to die for him? Because Christ alone is worthy. And so when, I, when we talk about faithfulness, when Paul talks about faithfulness, why he chose to be faithful, I want us to think about God being worthy, right? Faithfulness is that thing that moves us past this faith, this idea, intellectual consent that we might have, and it's the living out in our daily lives that declares that God is worthy. Verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then this is a passage of scripture that, um, that we as a family would ask that you would pray for us. 2 Thessalonians, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. He says, to this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and might fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Did you get that? God may make you worthy of his calling, that he would shape us so that we could fulfill the calling that he's given us and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment that Paul surrendered his life to Jesus, he entered into a battle. The moment that you and I surrender our lives to the Lord, we are born into a spiritual battle, are we not? Is that not what the scripture teaches us? And he asks us to fight the good fight. The Christian life is hard. In fact, it's impossible apart from the grace of the Lord. But he asks us to be faithful in that, right? To fight the good fight. So, our people, you saw in the video, mostly Muslim, everybody's an animist. Means everybody worships spirits. So people in our area are demon-possessed. Not everybody. But it's not unusual to see that. It's not unusual to see a naked man walking down the road just talking off the top of his head because he is literally possessed. Okay? Now, I'm with you. That kind of stuff makes me uncomfortable. So when we were getting ready to go to the mission field, uh, we're going to our training with the IMB, and they said, don't worry if you run into this kind of stuff on the mission field, because your African brothers will know how to handle this. So when it happened on the mission field, my African brothers looked at me and said, well, what do you think we should do? <laughs> I looked at them and said, you're supposed to tell me. <laughs> One of the first times this happened to us, uh, this lady obviously struggling with some kind of demon possession. She's going to churches, y'all, asking for freedom, and they're saying, we can't help you, but we think the Baptist church might be able to help you. Can you imagine that? So they come to the Baptist church, and I take my German colleague, we're doing a lot of learning together at this point if you're catching up with the story, and I take our, our African pastor, and we go and we, we walk into this lady's house, and she is, she's a teacher, but she's in a, in a state of absolute disgrace. She's covered in human filth and she's rolling around on the ground. We're asking her to read passages of scripture and she can't even see. It's like physically painful for her to even look at the passage of scripture. Now I would love to tell you a great story. 
Now, we prayed over her, and we read scripture over her, and there came a peace while we were there. But that woman did not receive freedom. We, we really didn't know a whole lot about what we were doing at that point, okay? Now, let me fast forward, okay, because this is a story of God's faithfulness. Let's look at the journey. Years later, we're starting to plant in our, uh, in our local village called Naharengi, and the local leader, his name is Paolo, his wife, Adelina, is a witch doctor. And as we're telling the story of the Bible, she gets to the place where she says, I want Jesus, and I'm willing to, I'm willing to die for him. I'm willing to let go of all of these spirits to follow Jesus. And so she makes that commitment, and the church comes, and we push down the witch doctor hut. It's on a video at our little table back there if you want to see it, okay? Like, the next Tuesday, this is a Sunday, next Tuesday about 1 o'clock in the morning, Paulo calls me and says, Adelina is sick. Would you please come and help? And when he means sick, he doesn't mean has a cold. So I go up into the village in the middle of the night, and, and Adelina is, once again, in a state of disgrace, writhing around on the, on the ground, half-clothed. And, and Paulo is looking at me like, well, what are we supposed to do? So we started praying over her. We started reading psalms over her. And we started doing, we, we just spent so much time with her. As she, she started sliding on her back like a snake, trying to get out the, the house so that she could get to the witch doctor hut that had already been destroyed. And somewhere in the midst of that, Jesus gave her deliverance. Once and for all, never have those spirits returned to her. And we kept praying for her. I don't know, it was about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. We didn't want to raise kind of suspicions in the neighborhood. So Paolo said, you know, Brian, you can go on home now while it's still dark. And that's great. This happened a few years ago. This last year, I'm sitting in church. And, uh, I mean, okay, we work with Muslims. For them just to walk into a church is to deny your faith and to walk away from your family. And this Muslim lady walks into our church and sits down in the middle of the service. Why? Because she's desperate to be delivered. And she has heard that these Christians know how to find freedom from this stuff. I, Becky and I are in there. We didn't even open our mouths. Abdul, who is a Nahada believer, asks her why she's there, and Abdul begins to share the gospel with her, how there is only one name under heaven and earth by which men can be saved, right? There's only one person who has power, and it's not us, and it's not these white people that you see sitting here either. It's the name of Jesus, and he can deliver you if you will give your life to him. And they start praying over her in Makua, and they set up a time when they can go to, to, uh, to her house and take out all the amulets and all the things that she has hidden that are binding her life. Becky and I don't even show up to these things anymore. We just fast and pray at the house. Why? Because we want people to know that it has nothing to do with the foreigners that are here. It has to do with the person of Jesus bringing light to the darkness. Amen? Now, that sounds extraordinary to you, but that is now normal. Dozens and dozens and dozens of Nahada are being delivered by Nahada believers as God is redeeming them out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of his son. This is becoming normal. This is God's faithfulness. And I just want to encourage you. I don't know what God is taking you through. I do know that he's taking you to a hard place. He does that by design. We're going to talk about that later, why he does that. Be faithful. If we had stopped with the first story, what would we, where would we be? But over the years... 
We have seen God's faithfulness. And it's so, in, it's so amazing and humbling to be able to turn around and say, God is faithful in all of this. But he accomplishes it by his power, not by our power. There is something that some of our Nahada believers have caught on to. You know, my family and I were listening to a book by, by J.D. Greer called Not God Enough. And he presents a, a, a different take on one of the Ten Commandments, which is to not take the name of our Lord in vain. Now, for you that were raised in the South, I was raised in South Africa. That's like the deep South. <laughs> you hit Florida and you keep going. Our idea of that commandment is there's certain words that you shouldn't say, right? The idea of taking the Lord's name in vain is like wasting it as though it's empty, as though it's worthless. J.D. Greer talks about we take the Lord's name in vain when we deny his power in our lives. Why did you take the name of Christian if you're not going to allow Christ's power to live through you? It's, it's Moses being asked to go talk to Pharaoh and him going, I, I, I can't do that. And God's saying, I am, and I am sending you. Whatever you are not, and whatever you are not capable of, Jesus is saying, I am. Are you with me on that? Whatever he is taking you through, he is capable. If you are struggling with anxiety, if you're struggling with temptations, if, you're, if you are incapable of this, Christ is trying to say to you, I am. And some of our Nahada believers have caught on to the fact that we are heirs with Christ of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Let's live like it. Let's be faithful to not take his name in vain or to limit him to what we can do, but to what he can do. He keeps going and he says, I have kept the faith henceforth. That means all that's left for me. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. There are so many ways that we as believers, that we as people can measure success, right? I mean, it's, I don't know, how much you earn, how successful you are at your job, how good you are, how you compare to others. I mean, this is kind of a human condition, right? I mean, even missionaries struggle with this stuff because, you know, this place is seeing a whole lot of churches planted and this place isn't and this is where I'm ministering. Am I doing something wrong, you know? We fall into that and, and we, there's just so many ways to measure success. There's only one way that God measures success, right? Faithfulness. Have you been faithful? That's why he says, I have kept the faith. All that is left for me is to receive the crown of righteousness. Well, that's pretty cool. So we're talking about crowns here. Like, are we talking like gold or platinum? Or I mean, are there gonna be some precious stones involved in this whole process here? I don't know. When he's talking about the crown of righteousness, he's talking about the glorification of us as saints, where we become like Christ, where that process is finished, where the righteous judge looks on us that do not deserve him because every inclination of our heart is rebellion and he declares us to be righteous and we see the fulfillment of that when we get to heaven and he gives us the crown of righteousness. Now, you guys saw that video, right? I mean, 
Oh, goodness. We look at that. I'm like, that, look, that guy looks like my son, right? I want to tell you about the guy that got on the plane to go to Africa, all right? Guy that got on the plane to go to Africa. Four years before then, he represented South Africa in the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney in baseball. That's kind of like being on the Jamaican bobsled team, but nonetheless. Uh, he was a third-generation missionary. Yeah. His grandparents went to the mission field on a boat that was sunk during the Second World War, and they still ended up going, okay? That guy had three degrees, a bachelor's degree, two master's degree. He had won awards in theology because he was a good student. He'd won awards in biblical languages because he was a good student of biblical languages. When he was at Gateway, he taught a young Mary's class that grew to where sometimes he would have 60, 70 people in the class, young Mary's class. I mean, this guy was something else. Let me tell you about the guy in the video. I mean, he couldn't even take care of one evil spirit by himself, right? We were working on Portuguese, and then as you heard in the video, getting ready to transition into Makua. The guy who had won an award in biblical languages preached his sermon in Portuguese, went up to a guy, one of the older men afterwards, and said, well, how do you think it went? And Africans are so kind, man. He was like, well, we understood what you were trying to say. <laughs> the humiliation of going through all of that. That guy was five years, five months into the hardest year of marriage in his life. People that I taught at Gateway probably thought we had it all figured out. But God took us to a place that was beyond ourselves, for sure. And it was hard. But his grace was sufficient in all of that. I mean, later on that year, we find out that Becky's pregnant. As we're in language, Becky gets sentenced to prison. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole other story. It was a rough year. Oh, yeah, I mentioned that he was an Olympic athlete, right? By the end of our first term, he had developed two, two degenerate discs in his back. This last year, in September, I spent two weeks on my back at the foot of our bed, unable to stand up unless I was clutching onto Becky. Why? Because some of us are hard-headed like me, and God needs to take us to the place where he can use us. But it reminds me of a guy who said that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, who was of the tribe of Benjamin, who was a Pharisee, and who according to the law was blameless. And then he says this. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ and the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means I may attain the resurrection from the dead." It's all rubbish, 
right? What I have found in my humanness is I like all those things I mentioned about myself, are they anything other than the blessing of God? But somehow we get attached to those blessings and we think that that's the point, that we live this life and that God will bless us. That's once again, that's getting back to a life in which God is in our orbit, not where we are in God's orbit. And we get distracted to holding on to these blessings that God has given us. Ladies and gentlemen, the prize is Christ. He's the prize. It's getting to know him. As we walk in faithfulness, we get to see God and become more like him. And he changes our hearts. And our hearts become aligned with his hearts. And what's important to him becomes important to us. That is the prize. My dad told me that. My dad was a missionary and he was a wise fella. Before we went to the mission field, he said, Brian, God is more interested in what he can do in you than what he can do through you. And I said, yeah, 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 I know, I know. I'll do my devotions, I got it. But we're gonna plant a lot of churches and in my mind, we're gonna do all of this. What I have found is that my plans are not God plans and God's plans are better. And when we give it all up for him and choose to be faithful to him, the prize is Jesus and Jesus will not disappoint. May we, as the body of Christ, be about Jesus. May he be the prize that we seek. That's why he gets on and he says, I, I think he does that because he wants us to know that he is sufficient in all things, right? Wants to take us to that place where we understand that he is sufficient. Let's keep going. At the end of verse eight he says, uh, sorry, in verse 8 he says, the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. When we walk in faithfulness, we crave the day when Jesus will return because we realize that it's not about this world. Our treasures are not here. Our treasures are in heaven. Are they not? Who have loved and longed for his appearing. But this is what I want you to hear. Our faithfulness is simply a reflection of God's faithfulness. Did you hear the last song that we sang? Great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful. That's why we can long for his appearing because in the scriptures, he has laid out over 3,000 promises saying, trust me in all of these things because our God is not some kind of capricious God like Allah. He is a God who makes promises and keeps promises. And we know where we are heading. We know that we are heading to a throne room where every tribe, nation, and tongue will be worshiping before him. We know that's our destiny, our destination. Are you with me? God is faithful and all he's asking is for us to be faithful. God chose us. We did not choose him. God poured out his life for us. He had no place to lay his head. And he's asking that we would pour out our lives for him. The words, not my will, but thine be done, were spoken by God. God poured out his life unto death for us. And he's the same God that says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And he's the same God that says, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. 
And he's the same God that says, I will return. Now we live in a messed up world. I understand that. And I understand that you know, America is getting more polarized and it's harder and all of this stuff. We all hear this and we see and read this in the news. I think that there's another story that's being told that you and I have a privilege to be a part of, and that is God's story. Do you know that in the last hundred years, more people have come to know Jesus than in all the other centuries combined? You're not going to read about that in the papers, are you? You're not going to read about the explosion of the faith through Africa into Asia. Missionaries that have been kicked out of China, it's too late because the Chinese are coming to faith in droves. In the hardest places, God's plans are not being foiled by whatever maniac is in control, doing whatever he wants to do. Because you know what? He put three septillion stars in the sky and he holds the world in his hand and he has invited you and I to resolve for good, to see his plan accomplished. Our God is faithful and he's capable and he will see it accomplished. We serve a great God. Let's not limit him by our lack of faith in what he can do through us. I say all this to say it's beautiful to look back. And I hope that you can look back in your life. And I hope that you can see that God has been faithful. I know that if you have been faithful, that life has been hard. I know that. But I hope that you can see that God has been faithful in all of that. He's asked you to do difficult things. I know that. But I hope that you know that he has been with you in all of that. And I want you to know this. Our best days are in front of us. There are 3,000 unreached, unengaged people groups in this world. And we know on God's promise in Matthew 24 and Revelation 7 that we are going to see them standing before the throne of God. We know that. You and I get to be witnesses to that. That's the story that we want to be a part of, is it not? God seeing his purpose accomplished. Okay, so what is faithfulness? Faithfulness is our continual and unconditional Yes, Lord. Praise God that we serve a God who speaks to us. You with me? Sometimes you might come into church and you go, we're reading from a really old book. God spoke. He did speak, but his word is eternal. That means what he wrote 2,000 years ago is just as applicable today. It means that his Holy Spirit that lives within us illuminates this word because our God speaks to us. And I am 100% convinced that if you are sitting here listening to my voice and contemplating God's word, he is speaking to you. And he's asking of you something. And our response to his faithfulness is to say, yes, Lord, I'll do it. I may not understand it. Boy, we as Americans, we like to understand things, right? We like the explanation, but God gives us a revelation. He says, this is who I am. Can you trust me with the explanation? Can you trust this revelation of who I am? And that's what he's asking us today. You guys have seen this commitment card. You've already written down your name and, and email address. I love that it says experiencing Christ together. That's what this is about, right? 
God is speaking to every single person that is here. And all of this is designed to draw us closer to him. There's lots of ways that you can, you can be engaged here at Gateway. I mean, you can serve. Um, you can serve with one of the mission partners that are up here. I mean, if you want to, you can, you can come work with us in Mozambique. I won't take you on the boat, okay? I'll spare you that. But you can come and work with us on a short-term mission trip. You can work with a lot of these mission partners on a short-term mission trip. There is nothing as encouraging to an African believer than to see a guy lay down his two weeks of vacation, speak a different language, come eat food with his hands, and say, I am your brother in Christ. And for him to know that he's a part of a family that's way bigger than he could ever wrap his mind around. That's awesome. Your generosity, right? What God has blessed us with. Are you going to be a part of that? Are you going to be able to, to just respond in faithfulness to him? I, I, and I know that he's asking you to do more than probably fits in your budget, but that's because he wants you to trust him in that. Are you going to be willing to connect, to learn about missions and pray for a missions partner? I, I can't even, I, you know, that's a whole other sermon on the power of prayer and how we have seen it work in our lives. But I hope that you have seen as, through the stories that I've told those are the faithful answers to God's prayers that have been prayed by the saints for us. Brian Harrell is a vessel, that's all I am, who gets the privilege of telling this story. I'm just one person in this great big team that God is using to accomplish his purpose. What about worship? Maybe you need to commit your life to Christ for the very first time. Man, I know that you have doubts. I mean, most, a lot of believers have doubts. They want the explanation. But I can tell you this. Christ is trustworthy. The same God who is the only true and living God who created the earth, who holds it in his hand, is also the same God who looked at your rebellious heart and said, I want this one. I'm willing to give my life for him, to redeem him from his sins. There is no better decision that you can make. We were designed to be satisfied by Christ. And so I would encourage you to commit your life to him. Or would you commit to follow God's direction for your life? I want you to think about how you would fill that up. I want to tell you one more story. Can I do that? When I was 11, I grew up on a mission field. Yeah. I did not want to be a missionary because I was a prideful person. I didn't like having to wait on other people's generosity. I'm, maybe you're picking that up through this whole thing. Brian struggles with pride. <laughs> That's why God is constantly, I'm going to, you know, he's just breaking me down. I did not want to be that. We went to a missions conference. I've been to so many missions conferences as a missionary kid. And we're there at the last, the last uh, invitation. I will confess, I was not even paying attention to the sermon. But this old preacher says, will you commit to do whatever, whenever, wherever for the Lord? And I felt like the Holy Spirit was talking to me. And that if I stayed seated, I would be disobedient and I was making a choice to be disobedient for the rest of my life. But I was scared stiff. So my older brother walks out in front of me and he walks down the aisle. And I followed him down there. And it was he and I, I was 11, he was 13. And there were I think three ladies and they were all like 65, 70 years old. That preacher, he was like, I didn't, I didn't think my preaching made a difference anymore. But God called me that day to the mission field. I laid it down before him. 
My brother was drafted to the Los Angeles Dodgers, and before he signed, he came up to me and said, what do we commit to, Brian? Can I sign with the Los Angeles Dodgers? I said, yeah, you can sign if that's where he's asking you to be a servant. Sign with him. But God had a different path for me. He was sending me to Mozambique, where I've spent my life and my kids who grown up there. But God has been faithful. I don't know what God is asking you today, but I can tell you this. God is faithful. Would you say yes? Can I pray for you? Father, we thank you so much that we serve a God who is faithful. We thank you so much, Lord, that, uh, that you have chosen us. And that you have not asked us to be more faithful than you, Lord. That you are the one who chose us. That you are the one who wrote all of history. That you are the one who does not ha- did not have a place to lay his head. That you are the one who said, not my will, but your be done, yours be done. You are the one who gave your life so that we might have eternal life. And you have made us co-heirs together with you. And you've kept for us a treasure in heaven where neither moth or rust can, or thieves can break in and steal. Father, may our response to you be, yes, Lord. May we be faithful and may you be glorified in us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.